reaching net zero emissions by 2050 seems out of reach in the absence of a major acceleration of clean energy technology innovations. India, as you know, is keenly looking at accelerating its entire innovation ecosystem and clean energy forms a major component in it. The startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume and uh, not just energy, but anything. I just think we need, um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. I believe that in a space like this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market, but also itself. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly. So. The systems change in some of the sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable. Hi, this is Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovations and innovators that could help take us to a net zero emissions future. I'm Siddharth Singh, a consultant with the IA based in India, working on a range of issues that impact energy transitions. And I'm Simon Bennett, a technology analyst with the IA in Paris, leading work on energy innovation policy globally. In today's episode, we're delighted to have with us Ashwin Shankar, the founder and CEO of Battery Pool a company that provides innovative battery swapping solutions for electric vehicle fleets. Welcome, Ashwin. Thanks, Simon. And thanks, Siddharth. Good to be here. Welcome to the show, Ashwin. While we are eager to hear from our guest, let's first delve a little into the challenge. Over the next two decades, India's vehicle stock is set to double to over 550 million. Along with it, oil demand from these vehicles, as well as associated emissions, are also expected to more than double. For India to pursue a net zero emissions future, about half of the sales of all passenger vehicles will have to be electric by the end of this decade alone. While typically for many consumers, overnight charging at their home or the parking lot will be the main form of charging, for some other consumers, this will not be the most convenient option. Uh, and this is in particular true for commercial fleet operators. In India, Two- and three-wheelers are routinely identified as having the highest potential to be the front-runner in vehicle electrification. In certain commercial cases, these two- and three-wheelers are fleet-operated. That is, businesses own a large number of scooters or auto rickshaws. These commercial fleet-operated vehicles spend most of their day in motion. Slim margins mean that drivers cannot afford to spend too much time during the day charging their electric vehicles. Among the basket of options for charging EVs, battery swapping has gained a lot of attention for these two and three wheelers. With battery swapping, drivers don't own their batteries or charge them. Instead, they exchange them at swapping stations where a third party keeps the stock of fully charged batteries ready when they arrive. The ability to swap your batteries in a few minutes or seconds is very attractive compared to charging for several hours at slow charging points or even fast charging points where it could take up to half an hour or more. Our guest today is working to provide solutions in this space. That's right, Siddharth. And now I'm going to take the risk 
of describing back to Ashwin what I think is the innovation that Battery Pool is bringing to the world in order to increase the uptake of EVs in this segment. And then Ashwin can, can tell me how right we got it. So firstly, it's worth noting that electric rickshaws and other two, three wheelers are not unknown on India's streets today. In fact, it's already estimated that there's over one and a half million of them. But typically these run on lead acid batteries. And lead acid batteries, like the ones that have long been used in non-electric cars, have long charging times, they're heavier, and they sometimes need replacing as frequently as every year. Lithium ion batteries are the ones that we're seeing in the more modern electric vehicles that are on our streets today, and those are lighter and more powerful. They provide a more premium driving experience, but they're more expensive. Now, at the same time, battery swapping itself is not entirely new. And many of us remember that a decade ago, a company called Better Place from Israel tried to launch a swapping model for cars. And that didn't work out, and there are other players in India today, but nobody has quite cracked this as a business. And I think that there's two key technical challenges that need to be solved. The first is designing a system that is user-friendly and is attractive to the largest possible number of drivers and owners. And the second is minimizing the costs and risks for the swap station provider by avoiding the need to own a huge volume of costly batteries, owning a large number of stations, and signing contracts for either too much or too little electricity. All of these are risks for, for swap station operators. And my understanding is that Battery Pool has zoomed in on both of these, spent a lot of time thinking about the customer proposition, has developed an app-based tool for users to plan and monitor their charging in real time, and has decided to serve all the different types of lithium-ion batteries to maximize its potential market. Its charging stations, as far as I can see, are relatively uncomplicated modular banks of, of lockers, and that they can enable swapping in under a minute and provide a high level of information on charging status, as well as uh, a high level of connectivity. But I think there's a second part to this, and the particular innovation that I see in what they're doing is around how the business model manages capital risk. And I'm sure that Ashwin is going to tell us a little bit more about how Battery Pool has arrived at that model in particular. Because rather than own the fleet vehicles or even the batteries, Battery Pool has found its niche as a manufacturer of swap stations and a provider of the apps and tools for other companies to operate themselves. And that means that while it still has the financial and technical hurdles that face clean energy hardware developers everywhere, it's not actually asking its venture investors to become owners of a risky fleet asset. And it's also potentially insulated against disruptive trends in battery designs by doing this model of uh, of not owning the batteries themselves, and thus could tap into new opportunities in different vehicle markets. So with that, it's time to bring Ashwin into the conversation and ask if we did a reasonable job at, uh, at introducing their work and ask him to, to tell us a little bit more about their current operations and what problems they're trying to solve in, the, in a broader sense. You know, you sort of hit the nail on the head. Um, we are working on providing the tech stack that is needed by fleets and swapping operators to provide swapping solutions to uh, yeah, electric vehicle drivers. So these drivers can be driving electric two-wheelers, electric three-wheelers, but almost all of them use them for commercial purposes. Right? So as Siddharth rightly mentioned, when you use these vehicles for commercial purposes, you can't really afford too much downtime. Right? Uh, and and uh, the, the downtime is really where battery swapping, the use case of battery swapping makes sense vis-a-vis -vis, uh, you know, plug-in charging. So plug-in charging can take over three hours to recharge your battery pack. In a battery swapping kind of use case, you can get your batteries exchanged in, in under 30 seconds. What's unique about our products are that we are battery agnostic. Uh, so the key insight is that while batteries are not standardized, across a fleet, across a swapping operator, or across a vehicle OEM, the batteries are the same. 
So we work with a fleet, or we work with a swapping operator, we work with an OEM, understand their battery specifications, and customize our battery swapping solutions to their uh, battery battery specs. So this way, we are able to work with multiple fleet operators, multiple swapping operators, multiple OEMs uh, with the standard, you know, intelligence and standard hardware at the back end. But the mechanical design of the station is customized according to uh, the battery spec that is being used in that in that fleet. Right. So today we have over seventy uh, smart swapping stations deployed all across India, and we have probably the largest uh, smart swap station deployment in the country, primarily addressing the requirements for two and three wheeler electric vehicle fleets. So Ashwin, uh, what has the experiences of your various consumers been? Have you been able to talk to drivers and and others who who may be using your battery swap stations what do they feel about this uh, has it been a, a steep learning curve for for any of them how easy has it been for them to transition to this form of uh, charging right that's a it's a good question so um, the end consumers in a lot of cases that we deal with are not not the most savvy when it comes to using technology right so uh, there is a bit of a learning curve involved when they start using you know, a automated battery swapping station where they're required to deposit a battery pack and pick up a, a fully charged battery uh, using just their, their smartphones, right? So while most of them may have used WhatsApp, may have used, uh, you know, Paytm to make payments, uh, not many of them have seen a a vending machine or a or a hardware uh, unit that dispenses these battery packs uh, through through just a click of a button on their, on their smartphone. So that's something that uh, takes a little bit of time for them to to get used to. But once once they're used to it, it's something that uh, uh, you know a lot of them appreciate because uh, by doing this, they're able to essentially earn more in their uh, their daily routes and uh, eliminate downtime that they that they otherwise had. Uh, one of you mentioned that these guys use lead acid batteries, right? So lead acid batteries they they like you rightly mentioned take over six hours to recharge, which uh, you know is six hours of lost revenue for a lot of these drivers. It it also lasts only, you mentioned a year, but in a lot of cases, we've seen lead acid batteries that only last a few months, up to three months, right? So uh, by using lithium-ion battery packs in a swapping station kind of use case, they're able to overcome a lot of these hurdles. And because it's, it's you know, it's, we're working with swapping operators who, who essentially finance those battery packs, uh, the drivers don't have to invest in those batteries. So they just have to buy the vehicles and get the batteries from the swapping operators and use them through our swapping station ecosystem. If I could just ask a question about the, the cost of those battery packs, as, as you mentioned, when you're dealing with a fleet, I mean, I don't know what the average fleet size is, but what's the, the multiple of batteries that you need to have in the system compared to the number of vehicles? So roughly for every two vehicles, you need to have one additional battery pack. So for every two vehicles, you need to have three battery packs in there. Because obviously, in many for many electric vehicles, the battery pack is the most expensive component. So I, I'm guessing that you're able to, if you like, socialize the costs of those additional battery packs across all of the users uh, to make that into a value proposition. Yeah, yeah. So what, what we sort of look at is that is the per swap cost, does that uh, make sense against any downtime that they would otherwise have if they were to just you know, have buy a battery pack and recharge it? Uh, you know, through a plug-in socket, right? And, and and that's pretty evident that that you know in a swapping kind of use case, it's you know 40, 50%. You can make 40, 50% more revenues by doing this versus uh, trying to own a battery and put it into recharge. That's a bit that's not intuitive to me. It's really interesting. 
so it, it justifies the you know additional cost of the inventory that you need to hold one needs to hold in in, in a swapping kind of use case um, for for creating a swapping ecosystem excellent so ashwin we're gonna drill down a little bit more into your experiences at battery pool but before we do that we'd like to learn a little bit more about you so what's your story where do you come from uh, you know what did you study at, at university uh, and what is the path that eventually took you down to becoming the founder of battery pool how did you become interested in sustainable mobility in the first place sure so that uh, so i was born and raised in in pune uh, which is a fairly large city in the western part of part of india and um, after high school i went to the us to do my uh, to do my undergrad in electrical engineering i was at at purdue university uh, which you know, for those of you who you know uh, American schools, it's sort of a hardcore engineering school where they focus a lot on on, on building and 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 uh, uh, core engineering concepts. Right? Uh, so, post my Purdue degree, I worked briefly at at Schlumberger, which is, uh, as you know, an oil field service company. So, we were actually building the tools that they were using in the oil field oil fields across uh, the world. So that kind of gave me an insight into uh, what uh, are the challenges involved in building products. For the energy industry, and post uh, the Schlumberger stint, I, I went. I was at Stanford for my for my masters. Uh, so I did put my undergrad and masters in in electrical engineering. And at Stanford, again, I was I was involved in in projects where we were building uh, electronic systems for space environments. Um, so again, you know, kind of uh, hardcore building product product was was something that I that I enjoyed and uh, was was something that was core to my background. Post my Stanford degree, uh, I actually moved back to India. Uh, it's not something that a lot of people do, but my my father is an entrepreneur, and he'd been encouraging me to uh, to come back and and you know explore something something here. And this was something that I was looking to do at some point in my life. But I figured, you know, now's now's a good time uh, to to move back here. And uh, after moving back, I in fact spent a year working at a public policy think tank. Uh, so we were looking at technology policy in the Indian context. Um, essentially, trying to understand where innovation uh, and where the you know the, the, the tech ecosystem is going uh, in in India. So we were exploring various sectors. We were exploring the healthcare sector. We were exploring the agriculture sector, and we were also exploring the automotive sector. And so this think tank was was uh, partly based out of uh, Pune, and um, Pune, as as uh, you know, many folks in India might know, has a very uh, you know evolved automotive industry around. So was a, an industry of, of interest to us and we were you know speaking to folks in the automotive space this was you know, late 2016 early 2017 when uh, tesla was getting a lot of traction in the west and even in india they you know they announced grand plans of going all electric by by 2030 right so so the automotive industry was clear that that this is where the the industry is headed and um, it, it it was a space that aligned with my interests um, it aligned with my background and and that's what got me to, uh, to to look closer into the electric vehicle space and see what it was like to you know what what the what the space is like and how the space would would evolve and uh, that's that's how I got started with with battery pool. So Ashwin, I believe that you pivoted your business model away from your initial idea. So when and why did that happen? And relatedly, what mistakes did you make uh, in your initial years? that you would not repeat if you were to start again today. So tell us a little bit more about how the world has changed in, in these years for you and in general. So I started my battery pool journey in, in, in 2018. 
Um, and right, you know, from from day one, our our belief was that in a country like India, the adoption of of uh, electric mobility is first going to happen in in use cases where the economics makes sense, right? So uh, in India, these kind of transitions are driven more by cost of ownership and economics as opposed to say concerns over pollution or or emissions. Uh, so it was pretty clear that you know even in in twenty eighteen. Uh, it was the fleet and commercial vehicle use cases where electric vehicles uh, were making sense from a cost of ownership standpoint. So it, it was you know, 40% cheaper to to own an electric vehicle. You drive it for 100, 120 kilometers a day um, as opposed to using a, a petrol vehicle to do the same. Right? So uh, it was pretty clear that this was, you know, this, this is a segment where the adoption is first going to happen. Now, we were not... You know, we, we had never run a fleet. We were not uh, uh, commercial vehicle drivers. So uh, to understand what kind of challenges these fleet operators faced, we actually bought a fleet of 20 electric vehicles. And uh, we ran this fleet for, for about a year and a half. Uh, so we kind of understood firsthand what kind of challenges these fleet operators face. Everything from not being able to access charging points to uh, how expensive downtime can be to the even, even small things like if the vehicle breaks down, uh, there's no mechanic who knows how to fix an electric vehicle, right? So uh, the the entire ecosystem back then, back I'm talking about two years ago, was uh, completely unevolved. Um, and even when we went and spoke to folks uh, about this offering, fleet offering that we had, uh, a lot of them had questions. Drivers as well as potential clients, uh, potential customers had questions around, uh, uh, you know, what is an electric vehicle and how. You know how does it charge and, and so on. Fast forward to to 2020, 2021, and uh, you know things have changed dramatically. Everyone knows what an electric vehicle is now. Uh, most people talk. You know, most people understand the concept of range about battery life. Um, a lot of cases, people even ask about uh, things that you would not expect them to ask. Is technical details like what what is the uh, what does the cell temperature go to, for example. Right, uh, so 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 it's, the, the ecosystem has evolved significantly over the last couple of years, and we are we believe that we are in the midst of that EV uh, hockey stick growth in in India at the moment. At what point did you ditch the idea of the of the fleet ownership and move towards the model that you currently have? Yeah, so um, you know, a, a year or so into into the fleet operations, we had a clear idea in terms of what kind of challenges these these uh, fleet operators uh, would face. And we actually built products internally to address our own challenges. And so we built these battery swapping stations. We built a sort of a software platform for fleet management uh, that would help us better run our operations. And being being engineers, that's kind of the first instinct we had. You see a problem, you just build something to to, to address it, right? Um, and in, in, in 2020, what we realized was that uh, we, were, we were witnessing a lot of fleets come up in other parts of India and other parts of the world, which uh, were using electric vehicles. And um, we're looking out for solutions like these. Right? So they had the exact same problems we were facing. And we realized that there is a huge market for these products, for this tech stack that we built out uh, for EV fleet operations. And, and that's when we, we made this pivot and, and, and decided to uh, focus on the, the product, uh, the products that we, that we built out. And that's what we're doing right now, where we uh, give out the battery pool tech stack to fleet operators for running their fleet charging and swapping operations. I mean, it's just remarkable 
the, we're talking about 2018 as if it's ancient history here. I mean, the speed at which the uh, things have changed and that you're able to have this global view as well of, of uh, the market opportunity being, uh, being large outside India. But I'd like to talk a little bit about money. There's a major challenge uh, of needing to be able to raise capital to sustain a company in its early stages. And so what were the main challenges that you faced when you were trying to convince investors on the either the fleet vehicle idea or the subsequent battery swap station idea? And how did you overcome those challenges? Yeah, so what I generally believe is that money follows the market. In the early stages, one of the biggest challenges we, we were having is, is how do we convince an investor that this is the right time to invest in, a, in an EV startup? The question in everyone's mind is that, you know, everyone knew that the world is heading in this direction, but they were not clear as to when that, uh, that, that hockey stick growth is going to happen, when that inflection point is going to, going to happen. Uh, so that, that was probably the biggest challenge for us to, uh, to be able to raise money. But in the initial days, what we, what we did, uh, get were, were grants, uh, from, uh, government of India. So government of India has, uh, through the Department of Science and Technology, uh, provides, uh, grants that, that allow early, stage innovators to to build out prototypes of their products um, and essentially run experiments uh, around you know the business that they want to eventually build so we were able to get hold of those grants through an incubator based sort of pune called the ncl innovation park um, and that really helped us in terms of you know running that fleet uh, understanding those challenges building products that essentially uh, we are now marketing and selling through through, through battery pool. And you said that the money came through the incubator. So is that part of DST's technology business incubator system? Yeah, yeah. So the DST has 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 a bunch of incubators across the country um, where through which they, they administer these grants. Uh, one of those incubators was was NCL Innovation Park in uh, in, right. in Pune. Got it. So these guys gave us access to to labs, uh, give us access to mentors. Um, give us access to these grants, which really helped us, uh, you know, helped us get things rolling. And as the IEA, you know, our eye is always on the, the public policy elements of, of these challenges and what governments can do to, um, in, to accelerate clean energy transitions. And so what's your feeling at, at the moment on whether you know, India's ecosystem has the you know, the right types of capital available at the at the right stages of development at the early stages you know there are grants like these available in sectors which are not often uh, sought after by your traditional vcs or traditional funds uh, so sectors like healthcare energy these are capital intensive sectors these are sectors which which uh, you know require a massive amount of money even to get a product out there um, so we're seeing a lot of uh, public sector funds that are that are that are going towards uh, uh, helping entrepreneurs, helping innovators get to that zero to one stage, get from zero to one, at which point they can then go out and, and raise capital from, from external investors. I mean, we are, we are a case in point there where uh, uh, once we had a, a prototype of the product, it really helped us in terms of raising money externally. But but getting that prototype of the product out uh, was something where grants like these helped out. Just to remind us, what stage are you at currently in terms of fundraising? Um, from uh, venture investors or, or others? Sure. So post those grants, we raised a pre-seed round in uh, uh, September of 2020. And post that, we raised our, our seed round earlier this year, uh, around April of, of this year. So uh, we are at sort of a 
a post-seed stage and we'll be looking to get into our next round of, of fundraising very soon. Congratulations. It sounds like this journey, moving from grants to, uh, yeah, to, to the seeds rounds has been relatively smooth, but I'm sure that behind the scenes it was frantic and stressful. Um, so congratulations on that. Uh, I, I think you also received some support from the Clean Energy International Incubation Center, which is an initiative related to mission innovation. Mission Innovation is an international initiative of 22 countries that are working together on clean energy technology problems. The IEA is a, a keen supporter of Mission Innovation. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that center uh, helped you and the support you got? So, so just like uh, I talked about the NCL Innovation Park, the Clean Energy uh, Incubation Center in, in Delhi also uh, helped us out. So this was a, 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 a uh, combined effort of Social Alpha, Tata Power, and a couple of other government entities that uh, uh, were there to essentially help clean energy entrepreneurs like, like us. Um, so part of the grants came from them as well. Um, and what really helped us there was was that uh, since Tata Power was involved, uh, Tata Power is one of the largest uh, private sector distribution companies in India. So it, it really helped us in terms of opening uh, opening doors and getting access to the right people uh, when, it, when it came to sort of commercializing our, our innovation. And plus, you know, the kind of mentors they had, which were very relevant to the clean energy sector, uh, that, that certainly helped us in terms of uh, uh, getting a clear picture of what we need to do as a, as a business in, in our early stages. Right. Which says something about the benefits of having uh, you know, incubators that have specializations in terms of, of technology areas as you say, to get the right mentors and the right experts involved. I think that's a, an interesting takeaway. Absolutely, absolutely. So so if you, I mean, I, I do believe that um, every sector and every kind of business has its own uh, uh, learnings which are specific to that sector and specific to that nature of business. So if, you've, if you have mentors who are, uh, uh, you know, who sort of build companies in that space or who've operated companies in that space, it certainly helps you in terms of uh, you know, trying to avoid making those those mistakes uh, and and uh, propels your 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 growth at the early stages. So Ashwin, uh, we'd like to understand a little bit more about your views on the policy ecosystem itself. So in general, what are your views on whether battery swapping systems should have standards that encourage interoperability across companies, even? Uh, so if you could influence the policy and regulatory framework of battery swapping in particular, what would you recommend? And a related question to this is, what can be done to encourage innovation and market development in this field in the first place? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so I believe that policy or standardization of, of anything is a double-edged sword. Right? So standardization can, can always have the uh, effect or side effect of, of stifling innovation. Right. So when it comes to, to, to battery technology, for example, if you kind of standardize a certain battery pack, while it might it might scale the battery swapping ecosystem, it sort of like will not allow innovators to, to experiment and to try different, uh, you know, different chemistries of batteries, different uh, form factors of battery packs. Um, and in, in general, anyone who's looking to invest in the electric vehicle space will want to maintain that, that IP around the, the battery pack. Any, any vehicle manufacturer, for example, uh, for them, the battery pack is, is the core of the vehicle. Like 
Simon had mentioned, the battery pack is is almost half the cost of of the vehicle. So um, if you were to standardize it, you essentially are taking away the ability of of, of innovators uh, to essentially move uh, things forward on the technology side when it comes to the battery packs. So uh, I believe that that while yeah while it might enable scalability, I'm not sure if standardization of these battery packs is a very good idea. So which is why the approach we've taken in fact is to be battery agnostic. So while we may not be interoperable, uh, we're able to work across different battery pack manufacturers. We're able to work across different fleets, uh, which, which have the same battery pack in that ecosystem, but uh, may have different battery packs from, say, another fleet in uh, another part of the country. So in, in general, what you know, my views are that to in- encourage innovation, market development in this field, you sort of have to allow uh, innovators to, to innovate. Right? That can only happen if you don't enforce policy, if you don't enforce standardization. So let the market develop in its in its own way. Um, let let sort of market flows, forces play out. Uh, let you know. Uh, let innovators kind of kind of drive that ecosystem and and uh, move to a situation where we know that this is the best for the Indian market and and uh, uh, you know have that essentially play out without too much policy intervention. So while you seem to have had uh, very good experiences in in your interaction with the various incubators, be it in Delhi or Pune or so on, uh, in what ways do you think they can be improved? Be it the system or uh, it could be the infrastructure. What do you think uh, is something that that you would focus your energy on if you had to have a say in this? So if I was to have a say, what I'd what I'd sort of recommend, what what feedback I'd give is is that uh, step down on the on the Bureaucracy. So allow innovators and entrepreneurs to focus on their on their business and on on, on building the their products. Uh, with a lot of these grants and a lot of these uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, programs, comes with with paperwork, documentation, uh, showing that you're sort of using the money for the right things. Uh, which you know, as entrepreneurs, this is what we want to do for the next you know eight ten years of our lives. So it's, it's unlikely that we're going to be using the money for something else. Uh, so trusting entrepreneurs and making sure that uh, we are uh, uh, allowed to focus on what matters, which is building the business, building a team, building the product. So I'm I'm sure that, you know, when you're giving pitches to to investors or others, uh, you're you're constantly trying to paint a picture of what the the future might look like. This combination of policy support in India for the, the uptake of EVs in general, um, but at the same time, allowing the entrepreneurs and the innovators to, um, you know, to, to, to recreate the future in, in ways we haven't expected. Where do you think we could be in, in 2030 in terms of uh, you know, fleet vehicles, but also uh, electrification of transport in general in India? Sure, sure. So if I were to summarize what I've been talking about policy and standardization, uh, what I'm essentially saying is that create policy for uh, the demand side. Right, and to encourage entrepreneurs on the supply side, but but don't like stay away from from standardization. So if I were to summarize what I've been talking about, it's, it's kind of a two line summary of of what my recommendations would be on the policy side. Now coming to your question about what the ecosystem will look like, uh, you know, eight ten years down the road, uh, what I do think is that in the next you know five years or so, we're going to see a massive adoption of electric vehicles in the two and three below space. And so that also had mentioned that this is the space that is, is primed for uh, for electrification. So we're going to see 
a huge uh, you know influx of 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 EVs uh, being you know uh, being used in 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 the two wheeler three wheeler use case. It's going to start with commercial. It's happening through commercial and fleet vehicles right now, but we're going to see that uh, take off in the personal mobility space as well in the next uh, year or two. So three to five years down the road, I'd be be surprised if if uh, you know if if the market still uh, allows for for ice or petrol vehicles to be sold um, in a, in a in a significant number. It's inspiring that we're talking about these kinds of numbers. Uh, given where we were just a just a few years ago, we see. In in Europe, you know, some countries up to twenty percent of new vehicle sales uh, have a plug. Uh, today, when do we hit those kinds of percentages in in India? Do you think? So, in the two and three wheeler space, as I mentioned, three to five years down the road, we'd see uh, more than fifty percent of the vehicles, new vehicles, being sold to be electric. I'd be very surprised if that doesn't that doesn't happen. Uh, I mean, even today, right? If uh, I, you know, I was talking to a a friend of mine who uh, was looking to buy a new a new Moped, a new scooter, right? And he had a choice between uh, a Honda Activa, which is uh, one of the largest selling uh, petrol two-wheelers in the country, so sort of the latest generation of a Honda Activa versus buying a uh, an Aether scooter, uh, right? And if you look at the numbers, if you take into account things like subsidies, it makes zero sense to to buy uh, a petrol vehicle for personal use even today. So petrol prices in India are at an all-time high. It's about uh, 110 rupees, which is almost two dollars a liter, right? So uh, petrol prices are at an all-time high. If you just look at sort of the basic math of of using a a, a new brand new petrol vehicle uh, versus using a brand new electric vehicle, uh, it's pretty clear that the electric vehicles went up. And so while people are still slightly concerned about charging and where you know where they get access to charge points and so on, um, I think uh, most of them see value even today in using in, in just going ahead and buying an electric vehicle. So three to five years down the road, we'll, we'll see that uh, a complete transformation of these vehicles on on roads. Yeah, indeed. In fact, in fact, Ashwin, we I think we already see the early signs of it because. Uh, and this uh, is something that uh, international listeners may not be aware of, but in India, electric vehicles have green number plates. So it's mandated by the government and there's a, it's a very distinct number plate. So it's very common for, for us to be on the roads and see uh, not just one or two, but multiple electric vehicles every single time you step out. This was not something that was, uh, you know, this visible even two or three years you know, ago. So I think just the range of new vehicles coming into the market uh, these are definitely positive signs. Now it just remains to be seen how uh, you know a range uh, of of uh, technologies in the ecosystem how they develop. You know, it's it's not just home charging, it's not just public charging, it's also battery swapping. So to see how all of this develop uh, over the next few years, I think will be critical to the success of the uptake of electric vehicles. But as a policy tool, the visibility of the number plates. And is going to stimulate the innovators to try and find the solutions around the, the charging, if that's known as to be a problem. So, watch out for some competition. I, I guess is the uh, uh, is the message, and some very welcome competition from the perspective of uh, our clean energy goals. We're going to slightly switch gears uh, in terms of the the questions now, because something we've been doing on innovation frontlines is to ask some rapid fire questions of our guests uh, and to get very sharp and concise answers to uh, some, some big questions. So Siddharth and I are going to, to go through these. 
I will start with the with the first one. The, the first question is, will India get to net zero emissions before or after 2070? It's going to happen before. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly. So I definitely think it's going to happen before 2070. Excellent. That's, that seems to be a common theme among our, uh, our very optimistic guests. Uh, anyway, so uh, next question. So who do you think will be your biggest competitor in 2030 and and this is not just in terms of company but also perhaps in terms of technology right right so if battery tech and charging tech evolves to a state where you can get a fully charged battery pack in under two minutes without affecting the stability of the grid too much that's probably going to be our biggest competition uh, in the next decade and if it weren't for energy what do you think you'd be working on instead you're working on water water access that's, I think, another big issue for a country like India, especially the sort of peninsular parts of India. So, what uh, new type of product do you think, uh, or do you hope your company will be working on or marketing uh, by, say, 2030? So, uh, I believe that in a space like this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market but also itself. So, if battery tech and a charging tech evolves to a point where we can, you know, something is better, faster, cheaper than than battery swapping. Uh, we'd be be building and marketing that. And finally, if you could collaborate with just one company in India or anywhere in the world today to scale up your operations, which one would it be? It'd be a large OEM, someone like a a Hero um, or a Honda or a Bajaj. These guys have a global footprint, so it's really going to help us scale not just across India, but across the world. A great set of answers and Thanks so much for bearing with our with our questions, the, the quick fire ones, and throughout this podcast, we've learned so much about what you've been doing, uh, your journey that you've come on, but also, I think about the uh, the role that the battery swapping could play in uh, what is a very dynamic uh, sector. Electric vehicles are dynamic at the moment globally, but India is really a place to watch in this space. Absolutely, Simon. Thanks, thanks for having me, and thanks for that the conversation. Thank you, Ashwin. You have been listening to a conversation with Ashwin Shankar, the founder of Battery Pool. Thank you, Ashwin, for sharing your experience with us. Thanks, Simon. And we all wish you the very best of success in accelerating the clean energy transition. You've been listening to Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovators and innovations that can take India, and indeed the world, to a net zero emissions future. Our next episodes will feature in-depth conversations with India's most promising innovators working on this global challenge. So it's crystal ball time. I'm listening to you describing the, this huge opportunity and I'm just wondering, when we get to 2030, you know, where do you think your, your biggest factory is going to be located? And you know, how important is it going to be um, for those, you know, those shipments to be going near to where there is CO2 storage, geological storage, um, compared to, you know, perhaps what, what share of your CO2 uh, might be going to, to other uses? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of where, what, how uh, question, Simon. So I think what will it be? Um, I think it will probably have to have 
a couple of gigafactories to be able to produce the kind of uh, demand that we are seeing now and just to be able to meet the ambition of uh, of uh, of the customers and partners i mean for reference perspective uh, we get contacted about a thousand times per month um, for for the product and for a fully modular unit people want to build something up it's just not possible for us to sort of even talk to a thousand people <laughs> uh, let alone service them so i think in, by between now and 2030 we'll probably end up with a couple of gigafactories where we'll be producing uh, hundreds of thousands of these units and shipping it out uh, where i think that's uh, something to be seen uh, we would want to match the ambition of supply with the ambition of where the biggest action is going to be and also the golden rule of startups is be in your market or closest to your markets um so we want to match that ambition we still have to see uh where uh where most of the action is and quickest action is going to be so we'll uh, we'll see where that goes um and i think in in terms of like how whether it's it's just going to be the sites sitting close to a storage location or uh, you know would there be role for dispersed sites to play as well and i think it'll be everything if you look at european example there are 20 industrial clusters under development now um so cluster is a couple of companies coming together and saying that look we are all going to work together and pool our carbon capture captured capacity so that we can um reduce the cost of transport and storage our clusters will probably capture 5 to 10 million tons of co2 so we have 20 under development in europe uh and the and the underlying principle with lots of them maybe 13 14 of them is that you can ship the co2 so you can capture co2 um at any site take it to a port put it on a ship and then ship will take the co2 and store it so i think we will see an action uh in 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 a lot of places in a lot of countries between now and 2030 and perhaps a bit of a delinking of yeah, the the storage site and the capture site which i think has um, plagued many of the ccs support programs um that have not managed to put up these large integrated projects with the uh sort of the, the large first mover infrastructure on the transport and storage fully agree exactly okay and irud thank you so much for answering all of our questions and being being patient with our uh, exploration of your story we're going to subject you now to a set of five rapid fire questions um that we are asking to our, our guests on this podcast and the first one of those if you could just you know fire back answers as uh, as succinctly as you can the first question is will india get to net zero emissions before or after 2070 absolutely yes before okay and uh, who will be your biggest competitor in 2030 this could either be a technology or an actual company green hydrogen and if it weren't for energy what would you be working on uh pharmaceutical Oh, wow that's that's a fresh one but uh, okay so what new type of product do you hope that your company will be marketing in 2030 uh a one that could capture co2 with a tenth of the energy cost today okay and the final question if if you could collaborate with one company in india or anywhere in the world today to scale up your operations which company would that be oh that's a difficult <laughs> that's a very difficult one I would probably want to collaborate with uh, but actually with government of india um because uh, you know in india everything is basically driven by by the government and the government policy so honestly i would like to collaborate with government of india that's a great answer and for the international energy agency which focuses so much 
on informing better government policies, um, that's exactly the type of answer that, that we're looking for here. And thank you so much, Anirudh, for sharing all of your experiences. Uh, certainly, I wish you all the very best of success in your initiatives to accelerate the energy transition. And we look forward to hearing so much more about, about Carbon Clean and your successes in, in the coming years. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you so much, Siddharth, for having me here. It was sort of great speaking with you and sharing some of the experiences. I think you're doing this. This is a great way of uh, of, of bringing about stories that will probably inspire a lot, a lot more people going forward. If we have to achieve, you know, net zero by 2030, I just think we need um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. And we'll not get there unless we have enough people motivated to work in this space. So thank you for, for taking the initiative. So thank you, Anirudh. I think this was fantastic. Um, we genuinely learned a lot from your experiences. And I uh, have no doubt that this would be extremely inspirational to people, especially in universities who, who want to take this up. In fact, we have been speaking to a lot of people. There have been a lot of interest in recent months uh, from, from people who have either money to invest or, uh, you know, or, or people who have not traditionally worked in energy who are trying to find out what's happening in the world. I think, uh, you know, your story would be one which, which would really help them understand uh, uh, your space at least uh, very well. So thank you very much for that. You've been listening to Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovators and innovations that can take India and indeed the world to a net zero emissions future. Our next episodes will feature in-depth conversations with India's most promising innovators working on this global challenge.